0: So tonight we're going to talk about marriage. And for those that are in the room who are married, this is your opportunity to grow in your marriage. But as Manny said before, growing in marriage as a community is a communal experience. This church is going to be a healthier church if this church is filled with healthy dating people, healthy married people, and healthy single people working together, supporting each other. This is how we grow. My struggle today was to zoom into a specific topic on marriage. Marriage touches on so many different topics, and I didn't want to get lost in the weeds. And so I want to start off tonight with my best piece of marriage advice. It's only two words. You may want to write it down. Here it comes. You ready? Argue more. Do you get that? Don't laugh at me. Just write it down. Just argue <laughs> more. I feel like in every marriage, there's usually the arguer and there's the avoider. And the arguer right now is like, yes! Okay. <laughs> This is my night. I've got some stuff to talk about in the car ride home. We are doing this. (laughs) And the avoiders, like, grabbing their phone, looking for, like, other nearby churches. (sighs) The avoiders thinking, like, if I play their favorite song on the radio on the way home, maybe we won't have to talk about this. Why should we argue more? Well, I need 10 minutes to explain why, and then I need 10 minutes to explain how. But I believe that God has something to say for each one of us tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are good and kind. I thank you so much for the marriages that are in this church. There are marriages in this church that are bringing life to the children that are under their covering, that are bringing life to their friends and to families that are supported by them. And I pray that you would help us be a church that supports healthy marriages. Give us your wisdom tonight as we lean into your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in Genesis chapter 1, the God of the universe speaks the universe into existence. He makes all things known that have been known, and he breathes them to life. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God forms man from the dust of the earth. And we see that... that And then there's some amount of time goes by in Genesis chapter 2 where Adam is alone. We don't know if this was days or weeks or months, but God is watching Adam and God sees that something is not good. Adam is not good. It's this big twist. At the end of chapter 1, God sees everything that's made and he says that it is good And then God looks down, and he sees that Adam's by himself, and Adam's not doing so hot. Adam is eating fast food every single night. He is playing video games in his basement, and he's not taking a shower ever. And and God looks down, and God says, it is not good For man to be alone, there is something in the nature of man that by himself is incomplete. Now, I'm not saying that every man in the room needs to be married to be complete. I am saying that every community and every church needs to live in the balance of the masculine and the feminine to be complete. Men need women and women need men. God saw Adam by himself and he said, This is not good. At the end of chapter 2, God forms Eve from a ribbon, Adam's side. And I want you to read tonight Adam's reaction. So in verse 23, Adam says, At last, the man exclaimed. So even Adam knew that something was wrong. Adam had been waiting on this. It wasn't just God that knew something wasn't good. Adam himself knew that something wasn't good. And Adam says, At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from Man. What's fascinating about this verse is what's happening in the original language of Hebrew. So the book of Genesis was originally written in Hebrew. And earlier in this chapter, you know, we've seen the word man. And just because the word is translated in English as man does not mean it's always being translated from the same word. So earlier in the chapter, you have the word man. And in that case, it's the Hebrew word Adam, which is where we get the name Adam from. And so that word is used several times throughout the opening of the book of Genesis. But when Adam sees Eve for the first time and says, at last, he we then, in this passage, he says, this is woman who came from man, and he's now using a brand new word. It is not the word that was used for man. It's a new Hebrew word. In my Bible, it actually has... Apostrophes around the word man and around the word woman. And it's the translator's way of saying, hey, 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 something interesting is happening here. There's a word that Adam is using that is a new word. This is not the word you would always use for man or woman, or just the biological or the gender difference between man and woman. There is a role that we're talking about. There is a relationship that we are talking about between man and And woman. And let me tell you the words that are used in this verse. So the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. And these two words don't just speak to the gender difference of a man and woman, they talk about the relationship, and both words carry a weight of opposition. So not just that the woman is the opposite of the man or that the man is the opposite of the woman, but these words in the Hebrew language carry this connection that man is the one who is opposing woman and woman is the one who is opposing the man. So after Adam and Eve sinned, God has a consequence for the snake, for the woman, and for the man. And God tells the woman in chapter 3, verse 16, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, for he will rule over you. Again, the writer is using the same word for husband, ish. Woman, wife, you will desire to control the person who is opposing you. Not just the opposite, the person who is opposing opposing you. And then God then tells the man in verse 17, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you, and your life will be struggle to scratch a living from it. The word here for woman is Eshaw. He's saying, man, husband, you are going to struggle to put a living together the rest of your life because you failed your Eshaw. You failed the woman who is opposing There's a Bible scholar by the name of Marty Solomon who illustrates these words, these Hebrew words, ish and ishah, as a wooden frame of a roof. Two planks of wood that are pushing in, opposing each other, against each other, at the peak of a rooftop. This opposing force creates a strength and a stability that maintains the structure. As ish and ishah oppose one another, they can support something Incredible. But if you take one opposing force away, then the other will crumble. Big question. What if healthy tension is God's design for your marriage? We'll talk about unhealthy tension here in a little bit, but I want to start here. What if healthy tension is God's design for your marriage? What if the arguing isn't just an uncomfortable side effect? What if it's the plan? There's a book by Gary Thomas. Uh, that Manny and I went through 16 years ago in our premarital counseling, and I would still recommend it today. It's called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And the central thought is this. God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy. God cares so much more about your soul than he does about your happiness. Your happiness is going to come and go, but your soul is eternal. Jesus said, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? No. No, nothing is worth more than your soul. Nothing that you have is worth more to God than your soul. The health of your soul is God's primary motivation. If God can get you married to drain some of the selfishness and pride out of your soul, that is his primary goal healthy tension is God's design for healthy marriage. So if my counsel to you tonight is to argue more, let's talk a little bit about what we're arguing about. So according to a 2018 study, the five most common arguments for married couples are, and in fifth place, money. So they used to say that every married couple had a spender and a saver, and maybe that's for you. In America, I see more often you have a spender and a different kind of spender. You've got a guy who gets really upset with his wife for spending so much money on clothes and then goes out and buys a $40,000 vehicle. So we're, we're all spending money. We're just doing it in different ways. Money conversations intensify, intensify when they become about motivation. The husband or wife buys items they can't afford to protect a certain image. So when they can't buy those items, their image is impacted. The way they see themselves is impacted. When they're told they can't make that purchase, they feel less than, they feel like a failure. Every couple will have a different perspective on money. That healthy tension is the point. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The fourth, more, most, com- the fourth most common argument is about Work. The work and money are tied close together. Everyone wants to work enough to be financially supported, but no one lays on their deathbed and says, I just wish I would have spent more time at work. Every husband and wife will have different perspectives on that work-life balance. You don't want to win that argument. You don't want to always be right. When one man brings his perspective and one woman brings her perspective and they find that point of compromise, that healthy tension is The point. Psalm 127, 2 says, It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. The third most common argument for married couples is communication. So this is arguing about arguing. This is talking about talking. It's, it's I can't believe you said that, you weren't clear, you made me feel this way, my mom was so offended when you said, and working through things in a relationship that either have caused offense or that reflected poorly on you or reflected poorly on them, and working through the design things. You know, a godly husband is a coach for his wife's communication. And a godly wife is a coach for his husband's communication. So when I finish a day at church and I'm either, Mandy either overheard me say something or I'm talking through a conversation, she's gonna say, Dan, I don't know if you should have said it that way. That maybe seemed a little harsh. I think you spoke too quickly. And then it's gonna go the other direction. I'm gonna hear a conversation that she had and she's gonna say something. And in our marriage, it's going to work like I just described. And I'm going to say, Mandy, you probably needed to be more direct. You probably needed to be more specific about what you expected to be done if you wanted it to be done that way. And so we're going to keep coaching each other. We're not going to see it the same way. If we did see it the same way, there would be no growth. But in that healthy tension, God can grow each one of us in our communication skills with each other and with those that are around us. Hebrews 12.14 says, Work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Okay, the second, don't put it up yet. The second most common argument is, anyone? You're getting close. Chores and responsibilities. I was surprised when I saw this and then it made total sense. (laughs) So, you know, whether you're single or married, your home is kind of like your own small business. There is work to be done, there are bills to be paid, and someone has to keep up with it. You know, marriage is like bringing on another manager on staff. Except in this business, it's okay to flirt with your coworker. And so in America, I read up on this men, hold on. So in America, most women who work a full-time job, so not every woman, but the women who work a full-time job, on average do one hour of housework per day. Men who also work a full-time job average about 11 minutes. Okay, I am going to (laughs) read... Just keep your elbows in tight today. I just feel like this is a good talk to keep your elbows in tight. Okay, The next words I'm going to read, I need to tell you, this is not my sentence, this came from the same study. Uh, Other evidences indicate that husbands are not intentionally adverse to helping, but when women gatekeep housework or act like experts about how chores are supposed to be done, men tend to see it as a power struggle and are less likely to help. Just throwing it out there. In a healthy marriage, though, fairness can never be the goal, and I know what you're thinking. That's easy to say for the guy that does 11 minutes of housework a day. But when you start keeping score, nobody wins. The joy of marriage happens on the day where I look at Mandy and I say, Mandy, you're giving everything you got to this marriage, and that just means the world to me. And she looks back at me and she goes, Dan, you're giving everything you got to this marriage, and that just means the world to me. If I'm trying to give just 50% and she's trying that 50% mark, we're just going to die keeping score. And that in that, there has to be a generosity of heart. I think uh, for those that are having conflicts in this area, the questions that I would ask is, is, did we agree upon the expectations and did we follow through? As productive conversations to have about chores and about responsibilities and finding a household that you feel like, that both of you feel like, is functioning well. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. If you are doing dishes in order to prove to the person that you live with that you are better than they are, then you're never going to find the joy. If you are coming into your house and you're going to go fix that tire, do that oil change, fix the leaky faucet, and you're doing it because you want to serve Christ and honor Christ in your household, there's always going to be joy. You're not going to run out of energy. You're not going to run out of joy. Okay, the number one common fight with spouses, can you guess? Yeah, children. So children are going to win the day here. 36% of all arguments in marriage revolve around children. And, and this breaks my heart, 20% of divorces cite child-raising conflict as the reason for their divorce. You know, you look at a, a kid who's, who's coming into a broken home, and it's not the kid's fault, but it is often the stresses of raising children that can be the cause of divorce. And, you know, why is that? Why do arguments about children rise above the rest? Well, it's because they matter the most. At the end of the day, arguing about your wife buying a $50 purse She doesn't care that much about the purse, and you don't care that much about the $50. But when we talk about children, the stakes are high because in a household with kids, they are the most important thing. And so when we come into those those conversations, we know that we're very invested, and the result we're very invested in. Children are so much more important. Argue more about your children. They need to be raised in a God-designed balance between male and female leadership. Now, I want to pause here, and I want to give support in the room for every one of my single parents that are here. You know that your kid needs to be raised in that balance between male leadership and female leadership. And then you being part of a church community is the path. So I I applaud you. I thank you so much for being a part of our church family. There are single moms in this room right now who have— a son who's in the Rangers program right now being mentored by godly men, that's the path. You know, God's plan to raise kids is not just two married parents. It's a church community. It doesn't just take a village. It takes a church. And so for my single parents in the room, I hope you feel loved and supported by this church. I want to support you in any way that I can and that being a part of this church community, we believe, is a great way for kids who are in single-parent homes, to still be raised with a healthy, godly balance between female leadership and male leadership. Every little boy needs to have someone in his life that has a motherly nature. Every little girl needs to be raised in a way that they have exposure to someone with a godly, fatherly nature in their life. And we are praying for you, supporting you through that. Hebrews 12, 11 says... No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful, but afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I like that because there are plenty of days in our arguing about kids and about the decisions we're going to make that you would say, discipline's not fun. No, 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 it's not. It's very difficult to raise children, but in the end, there is a great reward ahead for those who are raising children in godly ways in godly homes and we cheer all of you on that are parents in the room so if healthy tension is god's plan for marriage then what about unhealthy tension how do we recognize it and how do we guard ourselves from it I want to share with you the four destructive communication styles. And the first one is conflictual. So conflictual is looking for a fight for the sake of fighting. This is the person who wants to win, the person who is always ready to talk about it right now and does not want to be postponed, and they want to keep pushing. If you feel like you have a conflictual nature, I want to encourage you to never speak rashly, to never confront your spouse publicly, never confront your spouse in your children's presence, and always be willing to reschedule an argument. It's one of the the critical ground rules for me and Mandy's marriage, is that either person always has the privilege to reschedule an argument, to say, I am too tired, I am too emotionally charged, I am too frustrated right now, can we talk about this tomorrow? And so we set a time of when that's going to happen, and then we both peacefully walk away from that moment to a better moment. And someone who's conflictual would say, no, 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 right now, You can't back away. We're going to stay in this. And that can lead down some very destructive paths, at least abusive paths, of that desire to always fight. And we need to be able to choose more peaceful ways. The second one is defensiveness. So defensiveness is allowing insecurity to disable you from engaging thoughtfully in healthy tension. So the person in the room who struggles with defensiveness, I would want to say, never say, uh, never or always that when someone comes to me and they says, hey, Dan, um, I felt like you sang flat on that song on Sunday. Well, you never sing flat, or like, you, you, you never take care of me, or you never do this, or this is never fair. I just give like a really bad example. Can I try that again? I'm going to try it again. Sometimes I get stuck. So Mandy comes and she says, uh, Dan, you didn't take out the trash. If I have a defensive nature, I'm going to respond with... Well, you never take out the trash. I always have to do it. And I've, I've immediately turned a small argument into a huge argument. I'm now talking about everything. I'm now talking about all of the times. And I've made this big thing because my insecurity isn't able to just have one conversation about one thing. The best way to approach any argument in a relationship is to have one conversation about one thing. If we're talking about spending $200 on a purchase... Let's just talk about spending $200 on that purchase. Was that wise? Do we need to go return it? Is this okay? How should we make this decision in the future? But when we start blowing things up, if my insecurity can't remain calm during that, I'm going to have that kind of fight or flight method. And mostly for defensive people, it's going to turn a little bit more into a flight thing. We had moments early in our marriage where one of us would just walk out of the room during an argument. That hasn't happened and. 12 or 15 years, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God has worked through us to allow us to develop that skill of staying calm in a in a healthy tension moment and staying in a room and not being defensive, allowing someone to criticize something that you did without criticizing who you are, and being able to separate those things brings great health. Number three is stonewalling. Stonewalling is being physically present but emotionally absent. This is where someone can stand there and someone is speaking at them and they have emotionally left the room. They're standing there, but there are certain things and certain topics that they have just decided that permanently and for all time are just case closed. Their mind is made up. They will not be moved. They're not in a negotiation. They're just sitting there. For the person in the room who is um, inclined to stonewalling, I would encourage you to never get historical and never lose hope. That you can get in the place into a marriage and say, this will never be better. Well, friends, aren't you so thankful that Jesus didn't say that about you? Aren't you so thankful that God saw something in you that was worth redeeming? And if we are to be the carriers of his light, it means that we're going to sit in our marriages and we're not going to give up. Is that we're going to sit in a relationship and say, I'm going to listen anew today. I'm going to be in the moment right now. I'm going to address what's happening here today and I'm not going to block it out. I'm not going to shut it down. The number four is contempt. So contempt is the self-righteous attitude that approaches others as less than. If someone in the room was uh, leaning, was uh, battling with an, a nature of contempt, I would say, you know, never win through reasoning or logic and never out-argue. Never be condescending and never be demeaning. This is the person who will look down at the person who God has made to be their equal and that, it, that will say, no, I'm, I'm smarter than you and being able to kind of manipulate an argument to always come out on top don't be condescending. Don't be filled with contempt for your partner. We have to have this affection. We have to operate in every tension moment from a perspective of love. I'm going to read something. This is from a, a book uh, called Crucial Conversations by an author named Joseph Grinney. And he says this, and this, uh, he says this about our practice of arguing. He says, But the biggest mistake that couples make is avoidance. We feel something but say nothing at least until we can't stand it anymore. So we wait until we are certain to discuss it poorly. The success of a relationship is determined by the way in which sensitive issues are debated. True love takes work. Real intimacy is not just about love, but it's also about truth. And crucial conversations are the vehicle for surfacing truth in a way that accelerates a feeling of intimacy, trust, and connection. So how is healthy tension resolved. If God's plan for my marriage is healthy tension, he wants to see the Ish and the Eshaw leaning up against each other, pushing in different directions to build something that is strong. How then do I reconcile my healthy tension? I want to read Paul's counsel from the book of Ephesians chapter 5. You might have heard this read at a, a wedding. Uh, uh, chapter 5 verse 21 through 30 says this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Healthy tension is resolved within the nature of Christ. So if God's great plan for your marriage is not to make you happy, but it's to make you holy, to purify your heart, to drain the sin and selfishness and pride out of you, then the pathway to resolve the healthy tension is through Christ, and then it's in his nature. So how does that work out in that role between men and women? That in our, in my marriage, and our marriage, it means that every time we run into healthy tension, there's a similar pathway that we're taking. Essentially what it means is whether or not that argument is about money or work or kids or chores or responsibilities, the first thing that we're going to hold is kind of a courtroom moment. And in that courtroom moment, first got to find a good time to have it. So is it a good time to have it while one of us is furious? Absolutely not. We're going to wait until we both have a calm moment and clear thoughtedness to then have this courtroom moment. And in that courtroom moment, the goal is that both people are heard. I want to make sure that Mandy feels heard And I, as the man, get to kind of host this courtroom. And so it is the man's calling and responsibility not to run over his wife and to give a safe place, but it's also the woman's responsibility to stop and to hear her husband and to be able to say, not just do we have two different opinions, but the real care comes in learning the why. So Mandy might say, hey, I want to get a burger, and I might want to get a chicken sandwich for lunch. Well, we know we both have two different opinions, so at that point, I can go, well, we have two different opinions. What can you do? We're going to go my way this time and your way next time, right? But there's a better path. A path of care says, let me understand why. So then I'm going to say, Mandy, why do you want a hamburger for lunch? And Mandy says, I've had chicken sandwiches the last three nights in a row, and a chicken sandwich sounds disgusting. Well, I, I've learned something Because I took the moment to actually care and find out why my spouse feels the way they do, I've made the opportunity to feel empathetic towards why she feels. And then, well, Dan, why do you feel? Well, I got a coupon. I was thinking I could use my coupon and save two bucks, right? Well, now that I know not just my opinions, but I know the weight of those opinions, then I've got a chance here to say something different, to say, well, what's more important to me, saving two dollars or being able to show my wife kindness I think all of us guys would rather lose $2 and have a wife who feels cared for and who feels loved. And so we're going to make this. And so in a Christ-centered household, God has placed that role on the man to be the head of the household. And so in that moment, every time we have this court session, it does fall on me as the head of my household to make that final decision. After both sides have been heard, after care has been expressed, that decision comes to me. And if you're a man in the room and you receive that with like power and authority, you're not paying attention. That that weight should come on every Christian man as a holy mantle that's placed there that feels a lot more like weight than it feels like a lift. That it should feel more like a godly place responsibility and a somberness about carrying that role in a household to see God's will be done. The Bible tells us to submit to one another. That there's this care that's happening. And in that, we find Christ. It's where he's at. That as the woman says, I'm going to submit to you as I submit to Christ. That as I submit to the authority of God in my life, I'm going to submit to the head of my household when the same way the man says, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love my wife and I'm going to give to her as Christ loved the church. As Christ suffered on the cross, I'm going to give my life for my wife, for my family, and I'm going to offer that. And in that, the woman discovers Christ. In that, the man discovers Christ. And that God's plan for the healthy tension of our marriages is to be resolved in the character of Christ. We seek him out. Now, We need to have a more difficult conversation before we end. What about resolving unhealthy tension? So I know that I have a lot of people in this room who are either currently married to someone who's not a follower of Christ or who used to be married to someone who was not a follower of Christ, and maybe they weren't a follower of Christ when they were married to this. And so when we talk about healthy tension, we're talking about two people who are moving in the same directions towards Christ, and if I've got two people moving towards Christ in their nature and their character, I have high faith that that tension can be resolved. But in this world there is a lot of unhealthy tension and there and not every marriage is a marriage that should be stayed in. I don't want someone in this room to read out of anything that I've said tonight, that an abusive relationship is something to stay in. If you are in a physical, physically abusive relationship, I would highly encourage you to please find help. Come talk to someone tonight. We want you to be in a safe place, and God is not telling you to stay in a physically damaged relationship. There are places in the Bible where God does speak to people who are married to non-Christians, people who are married to people. And he does it in a really interesting way. And I want to share that with you as we kind of contemplate that we know that this room is as diverse as the amount of people that are in this room. So your experiences, your marriage experiences are as different as there are that many people that are in this room. And God knows that. God sees you. God is not looking to fit you into some box. And so in First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has an expression towards people who are married to unbelievers, and the very first sentence is actually my favorite part, and I want to show it to you. So in verse 12, Paul says, now I will speak to the rest of you. So who was the first of them? Well, they were people who were in the church who were married. So people who are all following Christ, that was the first. But now he's going to say, now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? So earlier in the chapter, he was saying things very, very bluntly. He was saying, hey, if you're married, sex outside of marriage, that's adultery, that's a sin, don't do that. If you're, if you're not married. And so he was going through these things with a very authoritative tone. With a very blunt answer. This plus this equals this every time. And when he crosses into this new subject of people who are married to unbelievers, he pauses and he says, I want to speak to you, but I need you to know right now that I don't have a direct command from the Lord. That I am giving you Paul's advice but I know that your circumstance is unique, and so I'm not speaking with the same authority that I was earlier. I don't have a direct command from the Lord. I'm going to read through the rest of this little passage here, but if you are at a place where you might be contemplating divorce or you are working through some of the pains of a previous divorce, or you're speaking to someone who's in those similar situations, I would encourage you to read all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Even if God does not directly call out your situation in this chapter, I think there could be a lot of godly wisdom to help you navigate through what you're facing in a godly way. But I want to finish reading what I uh, had started here. So now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. What does God care about more than your happiness? He cares more about your holiness. My grandma is an immigrant from Sweden. Her, my great grandparents came over um, on a boat on their honeymoon and then never went back to Sweden. And they, so my grandma grew up in the plains of Wyoming. And uh, neither one of her parents knew the Lord. And her mom, my great grandmother, had a very serious illness. And, you know, it was in the time way before modern medicine. And so there's things about it listening to the story that is just interesting to listen to that I, I can't tell if she had like a physical disease, or if it was more just like chronic depression that she was struggling with. But my grandma remembers as a, as a kid, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, her mom just being in bed for like years. So one night, um, an evangelist was coming into town in Laramie, Wyoming, and my great-grandmother got in her heart, I have to go. I have to find out a way, and so she began to persuade her non-believing husband into taking her to this, and he was furious about this. He was angry at his wife, who had been, in his mind, lazy and unproductive as a wife, and so he said, fine, I'm going to take you, and he goes to drop her off with my grandmother at this uh, revivalist meeting in Laramie, Wyoming. So my great-grandmother gets healed that night and gets saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit. My grandma's there, too, and but the service, as church services used to go, was really, really long. It was like a three-hour service. And by the time the service got over, great-grandfather had gotten so mad that he was waiting so long, he decided to leave and and not come back. So my great-grandmother is then stuck on the porch of the church with no ride home, living miles away from the church. But she was healed. And so she then walked all the way home that night, went in with my grandma, and fell asleep. The next morning, great-grandfather wakes up, and he says, he's furious at this whole church thing. She's now become religious. She's now a follower of Jesus. She's saying that she's healed. He's done with it, wants nothing to do with it. So he says, get out of the house. Get out. I'm done with you. I want a divorce. Leave. And my grandmother says, my great-grandmother says to her husband, says, give me one year. Jesus has done something in my heart. He has changed me. He has healed me. Give me one year. Don't kick me out. Let me stay in this household. So they were married the rest of their lives. My great-grandfather eventually got saved, but I really want to stress the word eventually because it was not soon, and it was not easy. It's not an experience that just has like this overnight turnaround. This is an experience that took years and decades of what was very challenging living, and yet God had a redemptive path for not just my grandma and not just my great-grandma, but for that whole family. And it was found in the nature of Christ. I don't know what your story is like. I want to make sure that my mind and heart is open. I want to make sure that your mind and heart is open. I want to make sure that when we have conversations about the marriages in this church, the marriages of our friends, that we are always starting from a point of compassion and empathy to hear someone else's story without judgment. But as we come alongside someone, if God would allow you to have a mentoring role in someone else's marriage, that you could be someone who was filled with the counsel of God, that you could be someone who was aware, passionate, led by spirit and truth to bring life into the marriages that are around you. That's the center of where my heart is at tonight. I want to see some marriages in this room who are in a tough spot. I want to see you be in a much better spot a year from now. I want to see God use the tension in your marriage to teach you about his narr- His nature that you could grow. I want to see people in this room become marriage mentors. You might say, um, I'm 25 and single. I have no idea how I could help someone else's marriage. You absolutely can help someone else's marriage. There is a single woman in this church who is 76 years old, and she has been part of our family for the whole eight years that we've been here at this church, coming in, helping care for our children, making sure that me and Mandy take a date night. I have a far healthier marriage because this single woman has come into our lives to help care for our family. You can, everyone in this room can make a difference in someone else's marriage. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have been gracious to us I want to start off by praying for every marriage in the room, and even the broken marriages and ones that are in the past. I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to our thinking and our feeling. I pray that you would minister to us tonight. I pray that we would feel the comfort of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that in the grace of Jesus Christ, every mistake that we have ever made is gone and it is washed away. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that when we call upon your name, we can be freed from the guilts of the mistakes of our past, and we can be washed clean. And I pray, God, that 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 grace would be celebrated in this room and in this church. I pray for any couple that is struggling tonight. I pray that you would bless their conversation on the way home. I pray that you would bless them and allow them to approach each other with love and compassion. I pray for all of the marriage mentors in this room. For every person who is single or married or dating, I pray that you would allow us to be an encourager, a cultivator of healthy marriage in our church community and in the relationships around us. We love you. We thank you. We need you to accomplish all of these things. In the name of Jesus, we lean on you. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.